Hey everyone, you're listening to the Business Project, and I'm your host Rahul Jacob. Here, I interview founders and hustlers who've been down in the trenches. So, what you get is business tips minus the theory and jargon. To be honest, while starting up, there were numerous roadblocks I faced, which took me a while to find workarounds and solutions to these problems. But as entrepreneurs, time is of essence, and this podcast will reduce your time to market and scale thereafter. In other words, you will know exactly what to do and how to do. On the first episode, we have Anirudh Narayan, author of the book Scale Smart and founder of Growth Spartan, a digital marketing agency. Anirudh is also a startup coach and growth hacker for numerous accelerators and incubation centers where he actively mentors startups in the 0 to 1 journey. Today, we would be going over a few sections of his book Scale Smart. Interestingly, to write this book, he interviewed over 25 odd founders from companies like Inmobi, Freshworks, Racto, to name a few. So this should be one episode filled with nuggets of information on how to get your first thousand customers. Listen in. So Anirudh, around 2015, you were in New York working in growth roles across companies like Shutterstock, right? What made you come back to India and write a book about the strategies to scale a startup? First of all, Rahul, thanks for having me, dude. I mean, uh, I know we go some time back. Uh, I think yeah. for an accelerator, so it's good to to hear from you again. I think in terms of your question, I was working at Shutterstock doing performance marketing for their tech product, and uh, I was given six weeks to find another job because the tech product was shutting down. So they retained all the engineers, and then they told the marketers, uh, "Thank you for your services." So. Uh, I tried looking for a job. It was a little challenging at that point to find anything in six weeks. So that's when I said, "Okay, I'll do maybe three months South America, three months Africa, and then come back to India." So my first trip was Ecuador, but somehow mm-hmm. from there, my consulting business really picked up. I started creating courses online. Uh, I did a lot of workshops in South America, and then at that point, I think growth hacking as a concept was really like hot, right? Like. Mm-hmm. Everyone was like, "Oh, what is this growth hacking? Tell me more about it. How do I get the the misnomer or the perceived notion of uh, growth hacking was? How can I get users faster and not spend enough money?" Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, so came back to India. Then I continued working with some accelerators. I think I felt like my sweet spot was there. Like if I could help be the accountability person, set up the frameworks for marketing, and I think I started realizing that. Uh, there are like common problems that a lot of people face right there is a zero to one problem on how do you get product market fit and then mm-hmm. once you kind of achieve product market fit how do i scale from one to n given the uh, noha around the marketing ecosystem in india was not as high as it is today i think a lot lot people are sharing a lot more today and i think when i looked at the books ecosystem a lot of it was very inspirational not as much like hey tell me exactly what to do Yeah. So I said, okay, maybe it makes sense for me to write this book, and I was like, what's the best way to kind of disseminate this information? I mean, information out. So I said, okay, maybe I can interview a lot of these founders. So, and I've been interviewing, let's say, founders of at that point it was Free Charge, but let's say Konarsha and Byju's oh. and Prakto and all these folks. And uh, there were a lot of patterns that came about, man. And patterns came about in channels. Patterns came about in frameworks of thinking and. Uh, I said, okay, let's put all of this in a book. And I think in 2022, I'd be like, hey, maybe you don't write a book, do a podcast, like how you're doing mm-hmm. it. And then you repurpose that content in in different ways. But at least at that point, uh, book writing, I think, made sense. 
So now I'd like to go a little deeper in terms of acquiring the first thousand customers. When it comes to the zero to hundred journey, right? I think it's all about finding all the faults in your business model. So things like operational issues, tech issues, acquiring customers, monetization, and stuff like that. So according to you, how different is the hundred to thousand customer journey? So I think B two B B two C is quite different. The way I would break it down is just think of them as representation of stages rather than. The actual number thousand, right? So when I think about thousand, I think of it as you've gone through the cycles of achieving product market fit. You exactly know what your brand needs to look like and what your positioning is. And then once you're hitting a sweet spot, is when like, hey, I can put in money in these specific channels. I exactly know what my cost per acquisition is. And then uh, X input, Y output, and then I'll hit my goals. But mm-hmm. uh, the way to go about it, I think the first usual play is getting your family and friends to try it, getting their feedback, finding out who your early adopters are. So there's some hypothesis that you need to do to get your first 10 customers. It's whether it's a B2B or a B2C, like you go with the hypothesis saying, okay, I believe my potential customer is in this age demographic. This is his or her behaviors, the current problem that they're looking to solve. This is how we would solve the problem better than our competitors. I think a lot of people get the facts right, the behavior right, the problems right. I think where they struggle is solutioning being very similar to what other competitors are doing. And I think if you get your solutioning right, because it's very noisy for every player, I mean, you know this, but for every player, there are like 20 other competitors in the space and you get you get drowned to the noise right so the one to ten i think it's important to test with family and friends test with your early adopters give it to them for free get feedback get as much qualitative info going right and everyone usually the ones that haven't tried will be like oh i'm going to do facebook ads i'm going to do google ads i i feel like that's very late in the game you don't want to do that early on right um, and do as many interaction the way to think about your spectrum is get as much qualitative feedback early on and then once you kind of cross your threshold of your 10 customers or your 50 customers, that's when you move into quantitative. Mm-hmm. So when I say qualitative, it would be like, you know, in-person getting feedback, webinars, demos, feedback, right? Uh, offline conversations, feedback. Once you know exactly who your persona is, what exactly is my sweet spot, then you can sl- slowly start investing in content. And content can be in the form of like, hey, I want to invest content heavily on, on video content or Google ads or Facebook ads. And and I think what's happening, unfortunately, today, there's a lot of dependency of one-on-two channels. And this yeah. is the problem that we face as well, right? So the way to think about B2B SaaS is 1 to 10 is friends and friends of friends. 10 to 25 is referrals from that existing audience. 25 to 50 is like your events, trade shows. 50 to 100 is like massive amplification of all of this simultaneously, performance as you like, instead of doing four articles a month, I'm doing like 25 articles a month, right? So, mm-hmm. so I think that's the way to think about one to 100. Uh, and you can start maybe three, four channels, and then you come down to one or two channels, which is where you do your most amount of interaction, and then the rest of it kind of becomes distribution. But I think to quickly summarize, the way to think about how to get your first thousand customers is getting your, your problem right, getting your customer right, getting your solutioning right, testing your messaging and your brand with like a few customers. And once you're really ready, then you amplify with uh, existing channels. So I think this is where the concept of product market fit comes in. A lot of times I've heard founders say that you just know when you hit PMF. 
and we have also discussed this in the past and you shared a few frameworks to identify if we have hit PMF, right? So can you maybe elaborate about some of these frameworks? Yeah, sure. So Mark Andreessen has this thing, right? You He talks about product market fit as a feeling. So which is like, you just know things are moving, you're getting automatic referrals, you're not spending too much on marketing, you exactly know how your customer is reacting to your product. Whereas uh, not achieving product market fit is... Like you, like you know that when you put put in money in marketing, you're not getting results. Uh, you know that nobody is like having this cookie monster moment, going, "Oh my God, I love your product." Right? Uh, your attention numbers are low. But in terms of frameworks, these are estimates. I mean, I think for every business, it it, it differs. But a good way to think about this is so one is qual- more qualitative. Like you ask your existing customers, how disappointed would you be if you could no longer use your product. And then you have four options, which is very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, not so disappointed, and no longer use your product. And you want more than 40% of them to say, you know, I'd be very disappointed if I couldn't use Supply 6, right? Uh, So that's one. Second is a net promoter score. So you want to ask your existing users or potential users, like on a scale of one to 10, how likely would you recommend your product? And uh, the way you... you measure NPS or net promoter scores per percentage of promoters minus percentage of detractors. So anyone that marks an 8, 9, or a 10, and sometimes just mm-hmm. 9 or 10 is a promoter, and detractors anything between 0 to 7. So you want the net promoter score to be above 30, right? So, okay. so those are two interesting frameworks. But in terms of metrics, like I can tell you for both B2B and B2C, like your e-commerce conversion rates to be above 1.5%. You want your monthly growth to be at least five to ten percent without you having to put in much money, and this is early stage, right? Uh, your cost per acquisition is at least one third your revenue, mm. right? Your churn is less than ten percent, right? Mm. So I think these are all metrics. Like there are also sometimes what happens is, well, let's say you have hundred people come into the website, twenty five people have checked out, only two people have bought. Mm. That could also mean like, hey, uh, that's like you're almost achieving product market fit, but there are like technical glitches, right? Yeah. So I think there are there are frameworks like that, which is more metric based, and then there is like, how disappointed would you be, and on a scale of one to ten. So another thing that you talk about in your book is identifying the channels to reach your customer. Usually the first thing that comes to a person's mind is either Facebook ads or Google ads, right? But there is so many more ways to reach a customer than just those two options. Now, amongst all these channels, how do you identify which channel to use and reach your customer? I mean, first of all, when I wrote the book in 2017, 18, 19, like, I mean, the ecosystem changes so much, right? Like mm-hmm. Facebook used to be a lot more reliable than not as reliable today. So I think that that's also changing. But that being said... Uh, there are two, three ways to do this. One is you can see your competitors. Like there are tools like similar web, there are tools like Ahrefs where you look at your competitors and be like, where are they getting their traffic from? And very clearly it'll say, hey, 60% of the traffic comes through search. 15% of the traffic comes through LinkedIn. So you can look at patterns across four or five competitors and be like, hey, maybe these are the three, four channels I need to go after, right? Mm-hmm. But the other way to also do this is once you've identified your persona, like who is that individual, then you actually do that 
customer development to talk to them and be like hey you know what kind of apps are you using where are you hanging out online where are you hanging out offline and uh, what are the apps you've downloaded on your phone so you kind of start getting that information in uh which kind of kicks in to say you know what i think these are the channels that they are hanging out in like for example if a lot of my customers say oh i'm shopping from amazon right or i start my search on google or i use in shots to read content then you know like okay maybe these are three four channels that you can try right so those are maybe two main methods the third one is actually like you hypothesize right like i believe my persona is this and my persona can be three four like for let's say for your product is i'm assuming if it's supply six if it's in the meal replacement space it's like you have millennials who are in the between that 26 or 25 to 29 demographic men who are in a hurry mostly living with their roommates right or they yeah. moved away from town so like moved away from their hometown and come into the city right so uh, then i'm like okay where can i find them online and offline so i kind of do have some mm-hmm. hypothesis I, i test those hypotheses and see where it comes through if it's collaboration with some communities on facebook collaboration on meetups is a certain question on quora and then you mm-hmm. measure everything i mean raul i think what's happening today is people are getting impatient man mm-hmm. like oh i need results right away and marketing it's like trying to push a boulder for a really long time to pick some momentum you know yeah and i think while doing this we might find a couple of channels that really work for us and maybe another three four that give some revenue and the others barely contributing to anything at all uh, so my next question is in these cases how do you know when is the right time to scale that channel i mean everything should come down to conversions and cost per conversion or cost per acquisition if you want to call it so like if my average order value is $100 and my threshold is i can't be spending more than $30 to acquire a customer uh, when you do the math then you try all these channels and then say is the blended cost first of all across all channels less than $35 and or or are some channels higher or lower than the rest right so yeah. some channels take a lot more time so for example organic might take a lot more time but performance might uh, give you results right away so yeah. uh, so how do you know you start with maybe three or four channels i trade i trade give it maybe 2 3 months but this is with the the pre- premise that you should have really got your messaging right If you don't have that right then it's not a channel problem right if you haven't achieved product market fit and you do all these experiments then you can easily blame the channel i think it's it's uh, important that you uh, look in word and be like is my product 10x better than what's in the market like just i think that should be the yardstick and nothing else otherwise you end up spending more money on marketing but yeah i mean a lot of it's also got to do with what's trending lately like i think linkedin's hot right now not as many creators so the reach is higher so yeah. you know the advantage of any new channel that comes along the ways you can spend lesser to acquire a customer google's comparative right. facebook's comparative uh but we keep going back to those channels right but let's say like tiktok in the early days if that was still possible in india right so b2b today i would say like 60 65% of the content's going to be video so you should okay. you should invest in video i mean actually whether you're b2c or b2b you should be investing in video whether that's mm-hmm. in the form of podcast like what you're doing or it's like in house and you're just cracking out content you should do it at scale because video is the only content that you can repurpose across all forms text audio distribute across platforms um 
but b2b is more a seo play it's a it's an offline play it's a linkedin play b2c maybe a little more on the angle of performance but there's a social play to it i think a lot of people underestimate relationships today it's fascinating how we are still so dependent on digital i can't tell you how many deals you can crack offline just by building relationships because nothing will beat one on one like if i if i met rahul at a we work and then you know he spoke about his product i remember that a lot more than you trying to get my attention on a facebook ad right so True. so it does help to kind of amplify that if you can got it my next question is with reference to your interview with fusion charts you actually talk about integrating marketing within the product right um, so to me these were more like a set of actionable tips to reduce the bounce rate of customers on a landing page so can you share some of those pointers for a brand to optimize their landing pages um there are some standard things that everybody should do and there are certain things i can tell you from my own learning which are which are interesting one is uh, every landing page needs to address the problem needs to talk about their market problem if they can and then talk about their solution in an emotional way as well as what they do socially signal which is you know uh these are my current customers that are globally recognized the social signaling you can do in terms of where you've been featured in terms of number in quantification as well in terms of number of transactions number of orders right so some things like that um very singular focus on one message right you want everybody to only do one thing if it's signing up for a demo make them do that if you want them to buy the product make them do that i think sometimes what can happen is you want them to do multiple things and that's when the customer gets lost we're finally talking to humans so like try to humanize the landing page as much as possible if you have a testimonial in the form of video great if you have an image or the hero image which is humanized amazing right mm-hmm. um and then repeating the call to action at the bottom navigation bar being sticky things like that few things that i think which could be interesting if you want to if you want to be bold and if you want to call out is you essentially call out how you're different from all the competitors it may be more skewed to b2b but there's no harm i think in calling it out on the b2c side also you can for example it's sometimes hard for people to just straight off the bat bucket you in something or they bucket you in a in a place which you don't necessarily want them to mm-hmm. so i think calling that out does help um and the signaling also like for example if your products more for athletes the imagery and a lot of that could be more towards the athlete right but that being said like for every product usage there are three four personas so you even call out this is for the athlete this is for yeah. someone who's a corporate tech focus or going to work right so you call those pieces out and i think make your landing page beautiful you can fit more content in if it's in the form of videos so don't shy away from videos mm. you have a global appeal to it i think people are definitely making better landing pages but no harm in making it like it's the top 1% of the landing pages out there in the world right and you can do certain ab tests on the landing page as well mm. so you can install tools like optimizely and vw to see how people are responding to your landing page like change the message on one element and then see how they respond but it's not hard and i think the other way to think about this is the more expensive the product the more education you have to provide yeah for sure so you will see companies like mind valley and evercoach where 
if it's a $10,000 product, you'll have a 4,000 word landing page, right? Mm-hmm. Also, the way you got to think about your uh, landing page is the journey of a customer. If, if I'm trying to move from, hey, I, I want them to just sign up for something. So it's a free version. And then from the free, I want to sell them to a $10 product, to mm-hmm. a $100 product, to a $1,000 product. Going down that journey is important how you deal with each of them. Like there's some some companies where as soon as you come in, hey, here's a free ebook, right? I got your trust. And then after the ebook, I sell you on the actual book. So you buy the book. Now after the book, I'm like, hey, this is cool. I'll sell you on the one-on-one, mm-hmm. right? So I think there are things that like that you can do. So mm-hmm. you have to be very clear about where your customers are coming from, which part yeah. of the the internet universe, if you want to call it, are they coming from? And then how you're interacting with them. And you have to make sure the the leaky buckets are fixed, right? If they don't mm. buy at that point, it should be like, hey, I'm catching the email and getting them to like my Instagram page. And how much should the bounce rate ideally be within? I mean, they say anything less than 55% is good. I think average is between 41 to 55. Less than 40 is really good. Greater than 55, you want to optimize. Got it. So this next question is mainly because you've helped companies scale on Amazon. So there's this new trend coming up where a lot of brands only sell on marketplaces, uh, marketplaces like Amazon, Flipkart, Mintra, and so on. And they're comfortably doing revenues of one CR plus per month. So for a new brand launching today, what do you suggest they do? Should they focus on these marketplaces or should they focus on their D2C store? So almost every D2C founder that I speak to is looking to get sales on their e-commerce platform and not want the dependency on Amazon to be so high. But almost every person that launches on Amazon discoverability is so high, your return on ad spend is a lot better on Amazon. Mm -hmm. So I think if you have to truly do it well, you should create content on one platform and you just dominate, like create content on YouTube or create content on uh, LinkedIn or Instagram and like really take it to the next level, right? And then once you have an audience that is captive and likes you, then you take them to your e-commerce D2C brand. After that, slowly move to the marketplaces. It's the counterintuitive way of doing it because everyone's doing Amazon first. Yeah, right? usually. Yeah. Because what is the goal at the end of the day, right, Raul? Uh you want to be in a business where you make decent margins and you want to be sustainable. And I think the challenge with an Amazon, let's say they blocked your products for some reason. Yeah. Like the amount of control that you have is very little. True. Similarly, Instagram or Twitter, they say, hey, we, we don't like what you're doing. We block your account. So you want to have absolute control end-to-end in the value chain. Mm-hmm. So long-term, you do want to have complete dependency on your Shopify store or your WooCommerce store. So if you have to think long-term, I would do everything for my own D2C brand. I think it makes sense. I mean, to your point on terms of marketplaces, like I would start a marketplace over a D2C brand. You have enough products, mm-hmm. right? You start yeah. uh, start a marketplace for tech products, start a marketplace for food products. Uh, that's maybe a smarter thing to do. And then over a period of time, you'll get enough data to see like what products can you create and then from there, kind of maybe decide to create your own brand and like how Mintra is doing it today or how Swiggy is doing it. Yeah. But a marketplace has its own challenges. I mean, you have to build both the supply and demand side at the same time. 
And let's say you don't do even one fit properly, the marketplace completely fails. I mean, there is no business where it's not challenging to build something, right? Actually, surprisingly, I prefer marketplaces because um, that becomes a community building play and you have to go after the supply first rather than the demand. But it, not like it's easy. It's extremely challenging. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I feel like no business is not challenging. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. Boys, onto what you're willing to deal with along the way. I feel like you can start a marketplace tomorrow with what is the investment? You don't need to own the product. Sure. So it becomes a marketing problem and a operational problem. If you're also saying you can drop ship products today through the marketplace, then barrier to entry is also low. Others can also do it. So I think you want to be in businesses where there's a perceived barrier to entry. Agreed. So we've spoken about growth. I now want to switch gears and touch upon that element of the unknown. So when you were writing your book, you did interview at least 25 odd founders, right? So was there a common trait that you noticed amongst all of them that probably made them successful and what they are today? Oh, that's a good question. Hmm. So I think each of them have approached it differently, but I think the commonality is definitely timing on the market. Uh, some of them will even say, hey, we got lucky. Like the founders in Mobi couldn't have seen this rush of mobile phone adoption that happened in this decade, right? Paytm, I don't think, could have imagined just the how UPI transactions have gone up and how QR codes have kicked in and how the adoption kicked in after demonetization. So they all capitalized on timing for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no denying timing and size of the market. But each of the products have had a unique differentiator. Like Chumbuck is definitely, is one thing that they have going for them. Chumbuck has its brand. Free Charge at that point had just massive adoption because of gamification. Baiju was one of the few folks who really helped people move from the 95th percentile to the 99th percentile. He was actually already a hit even before the online play came in. He's a good teacher fundamentally. So so I think all of them had something going for them. I know Bharat Sethi, I think he runs Rage Coffee, but I think at that point in time he was running a a e-commerce platform. He got a lot of campus ambassadors going. So there were some unconventional growth methods that he used. But uh, you have to check a lot of the boxes. I, I mean, it can't be like, oh, they just had a good team, good market, and good product, they got it done. It's that, mm-hmm. it's the execution, it's the the timing, it's being in Bangalore, everything. Like a lot of things have to kind of fall in place for this to really, you know, do extremely well. Yeah, it's probably not a single thing, but many things that need to work simultaneously for a founder to be successful. Anyways, great talking to you, Anirudh. Thank you for coming on board and listening all these pointers with respect to growth and scale for a startup. Thanks for having me, Raul. If you'd like to read about the strategies various startups use to scale, check the link in the show notes. Follow the business project for more such content. Until next time, cheers.